Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, the weekly podcast illuminating issues in agriculture and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are answered using a science-based approach with the goal of driving innovation to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Paul Vincelli. Welcome to the Talking Biotech podcast the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology, as well as new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Paul Vincelli, sitting in for Dr. Kevin Folta, and today we'll be talking about pollinators. And we have with us Dr. Rick Besson, who is an extension professor of entomology from uh, the University of Kentucky and has uh, a great deal of experience uh, both with insects and specifically with pollinators. So welcome to the program, Rick. Good morning. Good morning. Good to talk to you. So uh, let's let's start uh, by uh, maybe you could give the listeners a, a kind of a description of your uh, experience in the whole issues of, uh, of pollinators and particularly focusing on the last few years where I think you've been a, a major player in the state's uh, focus on how to improve pollinator uh, populations? Well, you know, uh, pollinators are, uh, they're receiving a lot of concern lately. Uh, I think this really came to a head back in 2015. The The White House uh, issued a, a, a paper uh, uh, talking about the need to improve pollinator health. And when we talk about pollinators, it's not just you know, honeybees, and it's also a lot of wild pollinators. Uh, there's many species of wild bees. There's also the monarch butterfly that a lot of people don't really think of as a pollinator, but it, but it is. Now, uh, some of the goals established in this 2015 uh, White House plan were to reduce the overwintering losses of honeybees. Right now, they're at unacceptable levels, somewhere between 30 and 40% is what we typically see. Loss during the, the, the winter, right? The overwintering losses. Mm -hmm. And okay. we would like to reduce that uh, to about 15%. That's considered to be the, the historical average and acceptable levels. Uh, they also wanted to increase the amount of land available uh, for quality pollinator forage and to increase that to, I think the number was about 15 million acres. And then with monarchs, they wanted to uh, reverse this, this dramatic trend in the loss of, of monarchs 
uh, and increase the, the uh, populations to about 225 million monarch butterflies uh, in their overwintering sites. And they're over in winter insights. Actually, I'm jumping ahead, but maybe you could say just a little bit more about your particular role, because I know you've been here in Kentucky, been a, a one of the keystones, if not the keystone in, in this, how Kentucky responded to the pollinator protection plan. Okay, well, uh, what happened is that, you know, the White House issued this paper, and then the EPA has requested each of the states to develop their own pollinator protection plan. I think it's really great that we were given the opportunity as Kentucky to develop our own plan, because we could develop a plan that's particularly tailored to our needs, our resources, and we weren't dictated what we needed to do, but we could create one and uh, bring people together so that uh, uh, we could ar organize our own plan. Uh, the, the lead agency with this was the Kentucky Department of Agriculture, but uh, University of Kentucky as well as Kentucky State University played major roles in terms of the organization with this. And through the process, we brought, uh, I would say it was between 30 and 40 uh, different uh governmental agencies, non-governmental organizations, and groups together. Uh, it really surprised me. I, I thought when we were going to do this pollinator protection plan, we bring together, you know, commodity groups, government agencies, uh, you know, other citizens groups together. I thought there would be a, a little bit of conflict, you know, in terms of uh, uh, people wanting to impose uh, restrictions on, on other groups and things like that. I could not have been further from uh, being correct, mm -hmm. that everyone, uh, everyone recognized the importance of pollinators. That, that was unquestioned mm -hmm. by any group here. And, uh, you know, even with, with honeybees, everyone uh, unanimously felt that they're an integral part of agriculture, just like any other aspect of agriculture. And, and as well as uh, monarchs, and, and there's a number of, of groups, and even within our own Kentucky Pollinator Protection Plan, there, there is a section for monarch butterflies as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the outcomes of our Kentucky Pollinator Protection Plan is uh, that we came up with best management practices for uh, people that have uh, bees, so beekeepers, uh, best management uh, plans for pesticide applicators and best management plans for landowners as well and how, how they can encourage uh, high quality forage and promote pollinators on their property. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, thanks, Rick, for that good overview. And it's uh, I'm, I'm pleased to hear, uh, even though we work for the same university, I didn't know how how smoothly this process went. went. I'm sure there was a lot of, uh, there were challenges along the way, but it sounds like a very positive experience. I think it was very positive, and, uh, and one thing I th think that was one of the intangible things that came out of the process is a lot of these uh, groups that have very different uh, uh, agendas and, and, and objectives uh, really came together and got a much better understanding of some of, some of the other groups that were involved in the process, yeah. and so I, I think it was a, a very positive process. Well done. So let's drill down a little bit. The monarch butterfly is one of the topics that I know listeners will be interested in because there have been over the years some concerns about particular applications of genetic engineering that may impact um, uh, the monarch population. So uh, for the benefit of the listeners that aren't familiar with the, the biology and the migration of the monarch butterfly, maybe you could start by giving us an overview of that. Okay. The, the, the monarch is... Uh, 
really, I'm an entomologist, so you have to forgive me if I get a little bit carried away with this, but it's a fascinating uh, animal. It is. And, you know, it, 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 it has this really unique way of, of migrating. So uh, if you think about, you know, during the summer in, in North America, we have monarchs that, that uh, are in the West and throughout the Midwest and East Coast, and these populations uh, don't overwinter in the areas that you normally see them. So what they do uh, in the late fall, they, they begin migrating southward. And so there's three distinct populations, you know, one on the west, uh, one on the east coast, and then the, the large one in, in the, the central United States in the Midwest. And let me focus in on, on the one in the central United States. So they begin migrating southward, and uh, they, they will end up just in a few very isolated populations in central Mexico. So they begin migrating southward in what, in late August, early September? Yeah, in our it, area? It, yeah actually, uh, in our area, they come through in, in September, Okay, gen- generally. But as you get further north, that migration starts even earlier. Okay. And it, it's not just individuals that, that are migrating, but they'll actually go through several generations. In, in a typical year, you can have four to five generations of monarch butterflies. And so uh, that it's 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 the overall populations we talk about migrating, not not necessarily individuals that will make it through the whole process. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they they migrate south, and uh, you know a couple hours from Mexico City, the, up high in the mountains of of Mexico, we have these isolated populations, and there's there's a number of these, but these are characterized by you know an acre or multiple acres of monarchs. That, that cling to these trees. And it's, it's really fascinating. I took a group of graduate students down a few years ago wow. and we observed this. Nice. And, you know, you see monarchs, you know, that are four or five butterflies deep just clothing these trees. I mean, it, it's like a, a very heavy monarch coat on, on these individual trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, they get down there in, uh, uh, you know, December, uh, January, uh, by this time of the year, uh, you know, uh, late February, they're going to begin migrating back to the United States. Mm-hmm. And again, they'll have a, a, a generation that occurs in, in the southeastern United States uh, early in the spring, and then they keep, they keep flying northward. They'll have another generation, you know, in the Midwest. And so uh, really fascinating. But the problem has been with the monarch butterflies is that the area covered by the monarchs in their overwintering sites in, in Mexico has dropped precipitously. And so that's been a concern with, with a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, what's happening to the monarch butterflies. Because mm-hmm. it, it is such a, a, a fascinating insect. It, it's a beautiful insect. Uh, it, it's one way that, you know, the uh, average gardener can can keep their their finger on the the pulse of the environment, you know, say, say, seeing the monarchs that, that fly through the yard. And, mm-hmm. uh, so it, it, it is really an interesting insect. Yeah, you used, in preparation for this uh, interview, we talked a little bit about the monarch, and you used the word iconic. It's an iconic American insect, and, and I've experienced, well, American and Mexican, and I've experienced that all over and over with with all kinds of people, particularly gardeners, as you know, who may be outside and see their first monarch of the season. So, 
Yeah, I, I guess when I use the word iconic American insect, I'm talking about you know North American insect. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> of course. So, um, so because talking biotech focuses uh, to a great extent on genetic issues and biotechnology issues. There are two issues that where where there's been some concern about uh, biotechnology impacts on on the monarch butterfly populations, and maybe we could start first with the BT crop issue that goes back a number of years. Perhaps you could describe that for the listeners and describe what the outcomes were of, of those investigations. Okay, I mean there, there's there's been a, a lot of concern about the monarch butterflies, um, and and let me just say that we we cannot for certainty today say exactly what, what the factors are that are impacting the populations. But there's, there's been a number of studies that have come up over the years that, that have, uh, you know, tried to tease apart cer- certain aspects of this. Mm-hmm, sure. You know, one of the first things that came out was a, a paper a number of years ago where they, they fed monarch larvae some of the pollen from, from some of the early uh, uh, BT corn uh, events that were out on the market. Those events are, are not currently out on the market anymore. And it be, by BT, we mean insect resistance. The, the insect resistant corn that that had the uh, had a trait from a soil bacterium, mm-hmm. and it's it's a, a naturally occurring soil bacterium. Uh, it's been used. That same bacterium uh, produces a naturally occurring insecticidal protein. Uh, we've used that that same uh, protein in sprays for organic production uh, since the '60s, and that they moved the, the 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 gene or the trait from the soil bacterium into corn, and we found that you know corn could protect itself from certain types of caterpillars, and you know that that was really revolutionary uh, to control the European corn borer, uh, w- which at the time was a huge problem in the United States. It was one one of our billion dollar pests. We either uh, uh, we, we lost a lot of money due, due to its, its feeding and damage and we also spent a lot of money on its control and together those added up to a billion dollars a year. So, uh, so it, was, it was a key pest and uh, when the, the BT corn first came out, this insect protected corn, uh, we found it gave uh, extremely high levels of control versus European corn borer. Uh, but one of the early studies showed that it's not completely selective on the insects that it can impact. And, and they demonstrated through some laboratory studies that if they put the, the BT corn pollen onto milkweed plants, then fed uh, the, these plants to monarch caterpillars, that they, they could get uh, some kill of the monarch caterpillars, and, and that that study got a lot of attention when it was published. A tremendous amount of, yeah. of attention, and, and you know, uh, it. it I, I feel the study was interesting in some ways, but it sh- it showed us that you know some of these technologies are not as selective and focused as we may think. But there was also an, a number of uh, other aspects to the studies that 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 showed that. Uh, in the field that a lot of those concerns uh, weren't as significant as were initially brought up in that paper. Because as you noted, the original study where they fed the milkweed containing the pollen from uh, the corn was actually done in the lab. And so they were exposed, if I'm not mistaken, the monarch uh, caterpillars were exposed to doses 
of this BT protein or the cry protein that would not occur in the field. Co correct. That that in, in that particular paper, they, they didn't report on on the doses. But you know, speaking oh. with some some of the authors, it sounded like the doses were quite high, um, and and so there was a number of factors that in the field. Uh, could potentially re reduce the exposure of the monarchs to the, the pollen. One is uh, wind and rain that would wash the pollen off the leaves of the, the milkweed. The other aspect is that by using the BT corn, uh, producers are using less broad-spectrum insecticides. So there's, you know, we're replacing one technology with another technology. We're not adding to it. Uh, and uh, so... Overall, the, uh, the EPA determined after a number of other papers came out that the overall effect of, of BT corn pollen on monarchs should be positive mm, okay. rather than negative. Rather than negative. But, okay. but it, uh, as, as you understand with research, it, it, it took a number of years for all these other studies sure. to come out and demonstrate that. Yeah. But I, I think there was still some... Uh, Initial uh, good information with that original study, it, it, it just sort of opened our eyes that, you know, uh, when we do have these new technologies, they need to be managed. Mm -hmm. And right. it turns out that this one does have a, a if anything, uh, it's thought to have a positive effect yeah. on, on monarch populations. Not 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 a hugely monarch, but uh, hugely positive. But it but it is a positive uh, effect. So yeah, I see your point. That was a good example of how uh, an issue arose and uh, follow-up studies were necessary to really evaluate that that concern uh, to see if it was going to hold water or not. And, and it sounds like it, it does not, but that wasn't clear at the time. And so we did the right thing in the scientific community. We went ahead and did the research and, and yeah. found the answer. Yeah. I, w w one aspect of, of science is that, that we need to uh, uh, criticize uh, things and fr from a scientific point of view. And mm -hmm. the wheels of research do turn slowly, slower than some would like, but we, we, we uh, are able to uh, ferret out these, these answers over time. That's great. Yeah, that's a great uh, point to take a break. And uh, we're going to come back uh, after this short break because there's quite a bit more to discuss on pollinators. And so we're talking to Dr. Rick Besson, Extension Professor from the University of Kentucky. And we'll, uh, we'll come back in a few minutes to uh, talk about that. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Today, a note about auto wrecks, podcasts, and happy endings. A note to the Talking Biotech Podcast comes from Jenny from Bemidji, Minnesota. She says that she was listening to the Talking Biotech podcast while driving late on a snow-covered country road. She hit a patch of black ice and ended up losing control of her vehicle, rolling and landing upside down. She was unable to call for help as she was unable to find her phone. But wherever it was, it continued to play the Talking Biotech podcast. She was trapped there for over an hour, cold but unharmed. Thank goodness for airbags. She wrote, I closed my eyes and listened to the podcast. Kevin and Paul kept me company until help arrived. She was able to enjoy two complete episodes of the Talking Biotech podcast and said that the soothing messages of science 
made a desperate time much more pleasurable. Thank you for letting us know, Jenny, and proud to be your podcast, Jaws of Life. Share your experiences or interests with us at TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. And now, back to the podcast. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast with Dr. Rick Besson from the University of Kentucky. He's an extension professor with really a vast amount of experience with, with pollinators. And so we're pleased uh, that you're here, Rick, uh, sharing your, your knowledge. Well, thank, thank you, Paul. So we've talked about the influence of BT or insect-resistant crops on uh, the possible influence of, on uh, the monarch butterfly. Let's turn our attention to glyphosate tolerance. And, and uh, glyphosate, for those that aren't aware, is the active ingredient in the herbicide Roundup. And so Roundup-ready crops were created uh, several decades ago uh, that were essentially tolerant to the application of this herbicide and really the weeds weren't. So that's a, that's been good in many ways for producers who have used them, um, but uh, there's been some concern about how the very good weed control that this program provides can eliminate populations of, of the food base of the monarch butterfly, the certain species of milkweeds, and, uh, and maybe impact, uh, be a factor in, in monarch populations, uh, both in the United States and in Mexico. So, so that's a complex topic. I've kind of framed it, but uh, Rick, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, it, it is a very complex topic. And, and let me say, to begin with, that I don't, I'm not sure that we have all the research to, to give definitive answers right now. It looks like we have some some idea of, of what's going on out there. But, you know, the glyphosate-tolerant crops, you know, uh, corn and soybeans, notably in the Midwest, that uh, they have provided uh, very, very effective weed control programs that are economical for producers. And the end result is that we see, uh, from a, a producer point of view, much cleaner fields than we have in the past. We, we have fewer what, what farmers would call weed escapes in the field. Okay. Now, the, now, there are some issues that are cropping up now with, with some weeds developing s- some, some resistance or tolerance to, to the Roundup. Mm-hmm. And so, but uh, in terms of monarch butterflies, uh, monarchs feed on as larvae only on one group of plants, uh, milkweed species. And milkweeds have been a, a weed pest in, in producers' field and fields. And uh, through the use of, of uh, these glyphosate-tolerant crops, we're seeing fewer milkweeds in these fields. And so uh, we have reduced, to a certain extent, uh, you know, uh, milkweed populations within uh, production fields. And that's from the perspective of a grower. That's kind of what you want is to reduce weed pressure. Uh, weeds are pests that, that that can steal the the profitability and yield potential from growers. And so, you know, for, from a grower perspective, that's a very good thing. You know, from a monarch perspective, uh, if if they're hunting for for milkweeds in this large cornfield or this large soybean field, uh, they may not find the milkweed out there that that they may have found. Uh, you know. Uh, decades ago, yeah, right, yeah. So, so yeah. So you've you framed it uh, rather well here, uh, Rick. Uh, 
what do you think? What, uh, what, what's, what's the role of that? Because, it, because it's plausible. And, and I've always recognized that as a plausible uh, con- possible connection between genetic engineering, Roundup Ready crops, that is, and monarch populations. What, what is the current research show? Okay, so the, the, uh, the research on, really we need to drill down to ask the question, why are monarch populations declining? Is it because of habitat loss in, the, in their summer uh, feeding grounds? Is it because of uh, habitat loss where they're overwintering? Mm-hmm. Is it because of some unknown disease or parasite, which I, I haven't seen any information to, to indicate that. But, you know, as an entomologist, see, these are questions we ask. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or, or could it be through uh, maybe not habitat loss, but, uh, uh, you know, a particular climate uh, uh, impacts mm-hmm. on the populations? Uh, you know, some some years we have some uh, uh, really nasty weather situations that occur in uh, their overwintering grounds that that can kill a substantial number of mm-hmm. monarchs. Severe storms. Severe storms. You know, uh, wet uh, rains that freeze on the monarchs and things like that. Mm-hmm. They they don't react well to that. Okay. Um, we're also very much concerned about uh, uh, illegal logging that's occurring uh, around some of these uh, overwintering sanctuaries. And uh, uh, literally, we're talking just just a handful of acres. Yeah. And so taking out just a few trees can have a, a large impact on these populations. But, you know, what has also received a lot of attention is uh, the habitat loss. In, in uh, and, and by habitat loss, you mean the, you're referring to milkweed plants. Am I, am I right? I'm talking about uh, habitat loss for the larvae occurring in, you know, the United States and Canada and, and places like that with these newer technologies we have from some of these uh, biotech crops. And, uh, and, and that, that's created a, a very, uh, I'm, I'm looking for the word here, uh, uh, a, a strong push for people to plant, you know, um, monarch way stations and things like mm-hmm. that to, to, to you know, for, for uh, homeowners and communities to try and increase the, the forage for that. Now, you asked me, what is the, the science Mm-hmm. saying about yeah. about this and i and i have to say there there's there's lots of ongoing studies right now we don't know but sometimes we we have to draw conclusions even with limited inf- information available and you know so, uh, w- one of the more uh, recent studies that i've seen that that's just come out has indicated that uh, it may not be habitat loss in uh, their their summer larval feeding grounds that's impacting the populations possibly as much as what's going on in their overwintering habitats in Mexico. Uh, w- what they're seeing is, the, is the, uh, the area covered by the monarchs in Mexico is, is dropped precipitously. And if, if you look at how their, their populations uh, uh, move nor- northward, uh, that, that is more correlated with the drops uh, in, in uh, population numbers than the, the size of the populations that are moving southward in the fall. And so, so that, that, that is an element that, that may show that um, what's going on between years in Mexico um, may, may be a very important factor. And, and it may not just be a single factor, but th- that mm-hmm. seems to be a very important factor. So, so at this point, um, tentative 
indications that the overwintering populations in Mexico and the factors that affect those is is maybe the the, the, the biggest factor as compared to the the milkweed populations that are along the way as the mi- the monarch migrates north. Have I have I summarized it accurately or? I, yeah, although I, I'm not sure we're to the point where we can say it's the biggest factor. Okay, but but it but does does look like it's a very important okay. factor. Okay, and, and but uh, and and one thing I don't want to drive any of the listeners to conclude that I still think planting monarch way stations is is is, is very important for a number of reasons. One, you know, it does provide very very good forage, and and we're getting production of of uh, uh, monarchs from, from these way stations. I think it's also good for, you know, homeowners and communities because they, they feel like they're empowered to do something mm-hmm. with an environmental issue. Mm-hmm. And they get a lot of, of buy-in and ownership with the monarchs they see when they're going out there and, and they're doing something positive mm-hmm. for, for this test. And so I, I don't want to dismiss the, the value of, of continuing to do conservation in North America. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and, and as a, my, my fiance is a social scientist and she would precisely repeat uh, that same point, Rick, it's very important for people to feel like they're making a difference. Um, and it, you know, we can't, you and I perhaps don't have the influence on what happens in Mexico, but uh, we can, do something about what happens locally, and and that can and that can contribute to the the process in all the ways that you've indicated. Yeah, and and, and monarch way stations and, and other conservation efforts are are still increasing in North America, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, it, and it's it hopefully what we do with with conservation uh, in this area in this region uh, can have a a positive effect on the populations overall. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, even if there's things that are out of, outside of our control, such as uh, climate and things like that, um, that, uh, you know, may, maybe we can offset some of that mm-hmm. w- with some of our conservation okay. efforts. Very good. So, honeybees, I want to make sure that we, we, we don't miss the chance to tap into your experience and knowledge on this very important issue. In fact, you're, you've been a beekeeper for many years and uh, many times in your life. So, um Tell us about honeybee decline. Uh, honeybee decline it has been a concern, particularly since 2006. And since 2006, we've, we've had documented uh, honeybee declines that have been between 30 and 40%. And how we measure that are the number of colonies that, that begin the overwintering process in the fall and the number of colonies that are alive in the spring. And so that, that's how we measure, you know, overwintering losses is the drop in number that we get during that period. And it's been unacceptable, and a lot of people think it's unsustainable if we continue this 30 to 40% loss. Now, uh, I have to say, in reality, it, it's not an overall 30 to 40% loss every year because we're able to recover some of those numbers during the year. We, we, we can uh, uh, increase the number of colonies uh, through, through proper management, but, but generally, uh, these losses have been high. It's been difficult for many uh, commercial beekeepers. You know, it's their livelihood. And, you know, it's been a concern. What can we do to reverse this? Now, uh, I don't want anyone to think that this is due to biotech crops. Mm-hmm. That, uh, 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 you know, th- there's a lot of factors that, that go into overwintering losses. For a number of years, we had colony uh, collapse disorder. It hasn't been observed since 
2013. There's there's a very specific set of, of symptoms you see with it, and we haven't seen that. We're still seeing losses. Uh, people have been concerned about pesticides. They've been concerned about a number of, of, of bee diseases, notably uh, a, a whole host of viruses that, that the bees get. Uh, but really, the uh, one of the major factors has been uh, a varroa mite. That that it's a it's a relatively new uh, parasite of bees. It's 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 been in the country since uh, uh, the early '90s, and and not only does it 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 cripple colonies on its own, but it also transmits some of these viruses that impact bees. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, in terms of uh, BT crops and honeybees, that uh, uh, really the the BT crops are are not toxic to honeybees. No, no, no one's that that I'm aware of has, has ever demonstrated any toxicity. Of, you know, bees will collect pollen. You know, they they can collect pollen from corn in in some situations. They can collect nectar from from soybeans and things mm-hmm. like that. And mm-hmm. and these biotech crops, I don't think directly pose any hazard at all to honeybees. Okay. But to to a certain extent, you know, when we have cleaner fields, you know, the, the glyphosate tolerant crops. Uh, we're creating situations where there may be a little bit less forage for the bees in in you know these cornfields and in the, these soybean fields the, the the flowering weeds that would be out there oh, for okay. them okay. Uh, things like you know clovers and all these other things that that could have potentially in the past been weed escapes for mm-hmm. the bees okay but yeah. so you, you, you that was a rather categorical statement uh, you don't think there's that biocid Biotech crops pose any hazard to, bio, to the honeybees, and the reason why that you know I caught that caught my attention is because I've I've known you and worked with you since 1991 when you first came, and and I'm telling you, listeners, this is a an individual that's going to speak very carefully, and so uh, so it sounds like a rather categorical conclusion that we can uh, we can uh, rule out uh, the any role of biotech crops on on honeybee declines. Well, I, I guess. Uh just to speak carefully, what I was talking about was like direct toxicity okay. to the bees. You know, so, so when when they feed on on uh, pollen fr- from uh, genetically engineered crops, you know, biotech crops, uh, either corn or soybeans, uh, I have never seen any studies that shown that those crops have been toxic to bees. Uh, I think that they do uh, in in some of their technologies. Uh, indirectly affect bees just because you get cleaner fields with with fewer mm, sure. fl- flowering weeds, and yeah. so that that's a very indirect yeah, a- yeah. effect. And so, so, so worthy of note, but uh, but uh, again, it's sort of a, it's sort of that same thing as glyphosate tolerant um, crops in general. It's growers are, are going to seek good weed control. Yeah, but but in in terms of the overall impact on the bees, I, I think it would be very um, marginal. At most, gotcha. Extremely marginal at most. So it's it, there are complex of causes, and and you're not the first uh, respected entomologist. In fact, that seems I, that seems to be a pattern from from what I see from a distance as a plant pathologist and not an entomologist. That that uh, respectable uh, sci- uh, entomologists often conclude that it's a really complex topic, and uh, in terms of understanding and teasing apart the multiple causes that may be involved. Yes, yeah, it, 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 it is very difficult. You know, uh, it may be a complex of interactions. Uh, uh, 
you know, you could even throw in some things like uh, uh, bee genetics may, may be a factor mm -hmm. in there. Uh, uh, nutrition can play an important role. Uh, pesticides and, and, you know, we have lethal effects from pesticides. We have sublethal effects on sure. pesticides. When we start mixing uh, fungicides and insecticides, th there's been concern about uh, synergistic mm -hmm. effects when, when we combine these things, that the, the impact from the combination is, is greater than the uh, impact from, e from each product sure. alone. And so there, there's a lot of things. Some of these things are outside our control. Uh, you know, others are under our control. For example, pesticides, that's something that we do. We can't control the weather, but we can control, you know, how we use pesticides in the environment. So you brought up pesticides, and, and I can't miss this opportunity once again to ask you a good, an important question. Uh, there is a class, uh, listeners, uh, that of, of insecticides called the neonicotinoid insecticides. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have been uh, blamed for bee losses in many contexts. Uh, I, I don't presume to know what the good science, the credible science shows, but uh, I'm talking to somebody that does. So can you, <laughs> can you comment about the neonicotinoids, what you know? Uh, do you have a few days? <laughs> that, that, no, uh, you know, some of the neonicotinoids, first of all, I hate painting with a wide paintbrush that that neonicotinoids is a class of chemistry there's a number of different active ingredients and each of the the active ingredients is fairly unique on itself and you know some of them are very very toxic to honeybees in terms of acute toxicity you know it's not it's we're not talking parts per million or parts per billion we're actually down at parts per trillion in terms of their toxicity very toxic very toxic. Wow. Uh, you know, I, t I talk to uh, some of the grower groups that I want to uh, protect bees, and I say these are ultra-toxic. Yeah. That, that's my own category. I like that. <laughs> but, uh, th and then there's others that have uh, uh, much reduced toxicity. So the, the, they are very different. You know, they've done a number of studies in, in the lab, and, uh, you know, they've, sh they've shown how toxic they can be. A, a lot of the field studies have shown contrary results. Uh, that's because what occurs in, in the field, you know, you have to deal with bees' behavior. If, if, if they get into something they don't like, that they, they shift their, their foraging patterns and things like that. So often it's very difficult to reproduce these things in the field. What, what I try and point out to the grower groups that I work with, that, you know, uh, when we talk about risk, and here we're talking about risk of pesticides uh, to honeybees, and I'm not just talking about just the neonicotinoids, but, you know, any pesticide to honeybees, that risk is really a combination of a few things. And what, one of the things is toxicity of the product you're going to use. And, you know, it, it's, it's unquestionable that, that some of these can be very toxic. But the other aspect is exposure. And you really have, it, it's, it's the combination of, of a toxic material and exposing the honeybees to it. And so, you know, with our growers, I say, well, you know, if you're going to use some of these products in a situation that the bees are not going to be exposed to it, you know, there, there's not going to be much risk. And then there's other situations where uh, there's a high likelihood of exposure. You know, when, when you put these onto crops that are flowering or just before they flower, uh, that, that's when you're going to increase the, the exposure. 
And in those situations, then you really have to manage the toxicity. You have to find things that are going to be not as toxic just because you're going to expose the bees to it. And, you know, the, the, it's, it's, it's not just the neonicotinoids. We have plenty of insecticides that are toxic to bees. And I, I would paint with a wide paintbrush to say, you know, when we're in high exposure situations, we need to be really careful uh, about what we expose these critically important pollinators mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And that, that could be fungicides, it could be insecticides, it could be some of the adjuvants, the things that uh, producers will mix with the insecticides so, so they get better control out of it. Or I should say mix with the pesticides so they get better control. But uh, they need to think about situations where they can potentially expose honeybees. Then they, they need to manage those products when 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 there is going to be uh, substantial exposure so so you it sounds like you're saying you wouldn't single out the neonicotinoids for for special concern no uh, recognizing of course that certain certain members of the group are highly toxic to honeybees but rather you you want to make sure growers understand that the exposure part of the equation uh, is the honeybee being exposed to the pesticide that I'm about to apply that's 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 the part of the equation you 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 you're you don't want to get lost in these discussions. I, I I think it's it's probably the critical part of the conversation. You know how 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 do we manage these products? Uh, because the, the the neonics have have lots of great benefits to them. Mm-hmm. They're very effective at controlling pests. They have low mammalian toxicity, which I I think is extremely important. <laughs> As, as, as mammals, as, as a mammal, <laughs> and so you know, I hate to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh-huh. And you know, if, if uh, we were to lose the neonics, you know, uh, we would go back to a lot of older chemistry that that is also highly toxic to, to bees. Maybe not as toxic, but we can see some problems. And so, you know, exposure we we, we reduce exposure by by not applying toxic materials to, to plants that are in bloom that, that bees are going to forage from. And that could be the crop plant. It could be a weed that is also out, out in the field. We can reduce exposure by not applying pesticides on windy days uh, where, where those uh, sprays are going to drift over colonies. We, we've seen bee kills in Kentucky due to spray drift with insecticides. We, we don't want to get sprays uh, that drift and contaminate uh, water sources mm-hmm. for bees. And so there's a lot of ways that, that we can try and manage this mm-hmm. exposure. But I think uh, there's a lot that can be done on the management aspect to make sure that we're using these things uh, with proper stewardship. Good, good. Well, you've given us quite a bit to uh, to think about, Rick, so thanks for that. And is there anything more you'd like listeners to know about the pollinator issue in, in general or specifically? Well, you know, uh, I, I, I'm one that firm, firmly believes in science. You know, science sometimes is slow when, when we can get, get the answers to this. Uh, and, and I realize that science can change over time. You know, uh, studies come out almost on a daily basis. We, we, we look at the, the studies, we, we interpret the, the results of those studies, and uh, we put that in context with all the other scientific li- literature that has already been published. And so uh, it does evolve over time, sometimes slowly, but it does evolve. Mm-hmm. Very good. Good point. And uh, so if they want to find out more about your extension program, uh, where, where should they go? Well, uh, they, they, I have a, a website 
in the uh, Department of Entomology at the University of Kentucky. They're, they're, mm-hmm. uh, they can check me out there. Good, and we'll put that link into the uh, on the website for Talking Biotech. So appreciate it. So uh, Rick, uh, once again, thanks for your time and your expertise. Uh, really, it's really a special treat to have you in, on the program. Okay, thank you, Paul. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Biotech. Write a review on iTunes and tell a friend to listen as your support allows us to deliver more exciting science to more people. I'm Paul Vincelli and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.